Oxford Dictionaries recently added 1,000 new words to its informal language collection. Maybe you heard about it. They added words that we have begun speaking in our language and in our culture. They now pop up in our conversations. And honestly, they're all over pop culture. They kinda, they've become cemented in pop culture. Words like hangry which is anger caused by hunger. If you have a teenager, you have seen hangry in action. They added words like wine o'clock, an appropriate time of the day to drink wine. They added the phrase rage quit, which is when you give up on something or you quit because of intense anger. They added the word awesome sauce which means extremely good or excellent. And one of my favorites they added is MacGyver, based on the 80s TV show. You MacGyver something is when you make or repair an object in an improvised or inventive way, making use of whatever items are at hand. But one of the most famous slang expressions of the past few years that was recently added to Oxford Dictionary's informal language collection is the mic drop. Microphone drop. The mic drop has been around a long time, but over the past two years, it really has cemented itself in pop culture, in TV and movies, shows and things like that. It's it's everywhere and everyone is doing it. Now, what is a mic drop? A mic drop is when a speaker or a performer intentionally drops or throws down the microphone on the floor after an awesome performance. So they speak and they just drop the mic. That's a mic drop. A mic drop is literally dropping a microphone at the end of a performance or a speech in order to mark its excellence. Or figuratively, it's used when the speaker feels he has made an impressive point. So you use a mic drop when you just said something awesome and everyone needs to be quiet and just soak it all in. You use a mic drop when you believe what you just said could be defined as awesome sauce. And you top it off by walking away. You drop the mic and you walk off stage because you just said something so profound. You just said something so awesome And everybody just needs to sit and soak in all of your wisdom and your genius. A word of wisdom to the men here this morning. I don't recommend that you utilize a mic drop if you're having a fight with your wife. It's not a good idea. Men, if you try and get the last word in an argument with your wife and you drop the mic and walk away, said microphone might just fly through the air and hit the back of your head as you walk away triumphantly. Just a little pastoral wisdom there for free, no charge. But even though the mic drop has been around for quite a while, and even though everyone is doing it these days, there has really only been one true mic drop. The one true mic drop to end all mic drops. And the one who did this was God. When God sent his son Jesus into this world, he dropped the mic and walked off stage. 
In the incarnation, God had the most awesome performance, if you will. In the incarnation of Jesus, God made the most impressive point. He said something so awesome. He said something so profound. He said something so incredible that the world needs to sit in silence and soak it all in. And here's what God said before he dropped the mic and walked off stage. He said, Jesus is better. In the incarnation, God said, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the Old Testament law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. God's tweet to the world on Twitter looked like this. Jesus is better. Drops mic, walks away. And Jesus is better. And that's the title to our new series in the book of Hebrews. So if you haven't already, turned to the book of Hebrews. And that's our big idea today for this sermon. And it's actually the big idea of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews. And that's really what the book of Hebrews is. It's just a sermon. In fact, the word better is used 13 times in the letter to the Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is not a formal letter like what the Apostle Paul or Peter would write. It's, it's a sermon. The author says in Hebrews 13, 22, he calls it a word of exhortation. And the big idea of the sermon of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than the Levitical priests. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than the rituals. He's better than the tabernacle. He's better than the law. Jesus is better than all the signs in the Old Testament that were pointing to him. That's the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. Jesus is better. Now, a little bit of a background to the book of Hebrews, and this sermon will be more of an introduction today. Let's talk about the author. Who is the author to the book of Hebrews? We have no idea who the author is. Now, many people have speculated through history who they thought the author was, but the bottom line is that we just don't know. Some people think it's Apollos. Some people think it's Barnabas. Some people even say Paul. But in the end, it's just speculation. We just don't know. Apparently, God did not want us to know. So guess what? We just had to put our hands over our mouths and mumble to ourselves. We just don't know. But one thing we can say is that God wrote it. God inspired and used a human author to write the book of Hebrews. All that we can say about the human author is that he was a man. And I say that because the author uses a masculine participle to refer to himself in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, etc. So the author uses this masculine participle in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. So that's about all that we can say about the author's identity. He was a man. And like something a man would do, he forgot to sign his name on the letter. And all the ladies said, that sounds like something my husband would do. Well, what was the purpose? The purpose of Hebrews, the purpose of this unidentified author writing this sermon 
was to explain the offices of Jesus Christ, the office of prophet, priest, and king. Those offices that you see in the Old Testament. And he's letting this group of believers know that Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our king. All of those offices in the Old Testament were pointing toward and looking to Jesus. And he has now fulfilled that. And he fulfills that role for us uh, as his children. He's also writing to demonstrate how Jesus has fulfilled all of the ceremonies and sacrifices of the Jewish law. The author wants to show us how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament, how all of the Old Testament sacrifices and all of the ceremonial laws, when you had to wash, when you had to boil, what you could do about that boil, the civil laws, the food laws, why you couldn't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. All of those laws that that you underline and highlight when you read Leviticus, you know those laws, don't you? You put them on Facebook and Twitter all the time. All of those laws, the food laws, the tabernacle, the temple, they were all pointing to the reality that is Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Let's talk about the audience. Who was the audience? The audience was... Primarily, though not exclusively, a group of Jewish Christians who were facing persecution sometime around mid-first century A.D. I'm sure there were Gentiles in these churches, but primarily they were Jews who had come to trust in Jesus the Messiah. And they were facing severe persecution. They were being thrown in prison. They were being thrown in jail because of what they believed about God and his word. Sound familiar? They were being thrown in prison. Their homes were being looted. They were hated because they belonged to Jesus. So there, there was this intense pressure for them to bow down to culture. Does that sound familiar? We might have a lot more in common with these people than we realize. But not only were these Jewish Christians facing threats of persecution, they were also facing the pressure to return to their Jewish roots and to go back to the old covenant way of worshiping God. They were being pressured and tempted to return to the old covenant sacrificial system that they grew up on before they trusted in Jesus. And they were considering returning to the old covenant sacrificial system of offering up animals for the forgiveness of their sins. And that's why our new sermon graphic has all of that meat on it. That's why those packages of meat are there. Because these Jewish believers were being pressured to return to the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices that they were doing before they became Christians. They were being pressured to take a bull or a lamb to the temple and to offer it as a sacrifice for their sins, because that's how worship was done in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. And that's how they grew up, worshiping God. Under the Old Covenant, in order to have your sins forgiven, you would take an unblemished animal and you would place your hand on its head, signifying you transferring your guilt, your shame, your sin to that animal. And that animal would die in your place. And the priest would slit the animal's throat and catch the blood in a container. And then the animal's blood would be thrown on the sides of the altar. And then the animal would be cut up and would be washed. And parts of that animal, depending on the sacrifice, would be placed on the altar 
And some of that animal's parts would be totally burned up, signifying acceptance by God, saying, I accept this sacrifice on your behalf. And then some of it would be cooked and would be returned to you, the worshiper, and you would eat that meat in the presence of the Lord with the priest and with other believers who were there with you. It was like a barbecue. That's how you worshiped under the old covenant. You had a barbecue. Now, you grilled out with a priest, if you will. That's what Leviticus 3 is all about, the the peace offering. Part of it was burned up, part of it returned to you, and you ate in the presence. Now, if you offered a burnt offering, the entire thing was burnt up. But you barbecued. You ate the meat from the animal that died for your sins, and you did it with other believers, signifying your peace with God and one another. All of this, of course, is pointing to and and leading us to the Lord's Supper, which is what we do. We eat together as a family, celebrating peace with one another and peace with God. And that's why these believers were being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. And that is a big temptation, isn't it? Think about this. Under the Old Covenant, you could worship God by eating steak. You, could, you went to church, if you will, and you worshiped God by eating tri-tip. And all the men said, amen. And that's why our new sermon art has all of those packages of meat on it, because the author of Hebrews was telling his audience that they could not go back to old covenant worship. They could not go back to sacrificing animals and having a barbecue to celebrate their acceptance and their forgiveness by God. Now, lest you think that worship under the new covenant is not somehow appealing, here's the good news, the best news. We get to eat bacon and sausage in the new covenant. I had pulled pork, barbecue pulled pulled pork for dinner last night and sausage this morning, celebrating life under the new covenant. Under Under the old covenant, pigs were off limits. They were unclean. So part of the newness of the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus is that we get to eat bacon. And everybody said, amen, hallelujah. And if you did not amen that bacon statement, we may need to introduce you to something called church discipline. (laughs) What the author of Hebrews is writing to tell these Jewish Christians is that they cannot go back to the Old Testament way of worshiping God. They cannot try to be justified through the law. Now why? Why could they not go back under the old covenant? Because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is the lamb of God who was sacrificed once for all for our sins to bring us to God. They could not go back under the old covenant because all of those sacrifices, all of those symbols, those rituals, those laws, they were all pointing to the reality, to Jesus, who is God incarnate. So in the incarnation... Jesus coming to the earth, God spoke to us. God spoke to us in his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus is he's the God-man. He's God in human flesh. Fully God, fully man, and those two natures united together in one person. And God spoke in him. In the incarnation, God dropped the mic and walked off stage. In the incarnation, God said the most profound, the most incredible thing. Jesus came to rescue sinners. And then God dropped the mic and walked off stage. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews if you haven't. 
We're not going to get far today. We're just going to be covering the first one and a half verses as an introduction to the book. But look at verse one in Hebrews chapter one and hear the word of the gracious God who rescues sinners like us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So right off the bat, the author wants these believers to know that Jesus is better than the old covenant system. Right off the bat, he seeks to show the distinction and the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant, between Moses and Jesus, between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, between law and gospel. And he'll explain why Jesus is better in verses two through four, and we'll look at that. We're probably gonna spend a couple of weeks just in verses two through four because there's so much meat, no pun intended, in those verses. But what we'll see in verses two through four is why it was so ridiculous for these believers to try to go back to the law to be justified, to be made right with God because of who Jesus is. But this week, we're only going to be looking at verse 1 and part of verse 2. Now, remember what they were struggling with. They're being pressured to go back to the old way of worship, the way spelled out in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system and all the ceremonial and civil laws. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to tell them that, yes, God did speak in many ways in the past. God did speak in certain ways and through the prophets. That was God's plan back then, or part of his one big plan, I should say. And that was how God worked in the past with his people. In the past, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, spoke to his people in various ways. He spoke audibly to some people. Some people actually heard God speak. They heard his voice, which I imagine sounded something like a cross between James Earl Jones and Morgan Freeman. Firm, but gentle. But God also spoke through angels and through prophets and through dreams and visions and even through a donkey once, right? So God is a gracious God who speaks to sinners. He hasn't left us in the dark, although sometimes it feels like he has left us in the dark, right? Sometimes we wish God would descend in a cloud and tell us what to do, right? Sometimes we want God to just come down and to speak to us and to tell us what to do. Well, guess what? He already did that once. God came down on Mount Sinai and spoke, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But sometimes we want God to come down and just tell us, what do you want me to do in this situation? Wouldn't it be great to actually hear God's voice? Wouldn't it be great to hear God tell you, take this job, Don't buy that house, buy this one. Go to college here. Don't get your hopes up for that team because they are not going to the Super Bowl this year. Go buy a fan at Home Depot because there's a heat wave coming next week and they're gonna sell out of fans. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not how God works. He speaks, but he has already spoken to us in his son. Now, that's not to say that you can't hear God's voice because you can you can actually hear God speak to you. Did you know that? You can hear God's voice. You can hear God's voice 
in the Bible. That's how God speaks to people today. God speaks to us through his word. Now, I personally don't think that God speaks audibly to people today. I don't think that people hear God's voice today except through his word through the Bible. So that means that if you really want to hear God's voice, then open up your Bible and read it. That is God speaking to you. Reading the Bible is God speaking to you. Let me say that again. If you want to hear God's voice, then open up your Bible and read it. That is God speaking to you. Reading the Bible is God speaking to you. In my Bible right here, I have 1,042 pages of God's word. 1,042 pages of God speaking to me. I don't think I need any extra words. I'm still trying to digest and understand 1,042 pages of God's word. I don't think I need any new words because I have yet to master these 1,042 pages. Reading the Bible is God speaking to you. Or if you prefer, listen to the Bible being read on CD or use an app on your smartphone. You can get the ESV Study Bible app and you can hear Max McLean, who has a really awesome voice. You can hear him doing a pretty good job of reading God's word. When you listen to an audio version of the Bible, you will be hearing God's voice. Hearing God's word. In fact, a few minutes ago when I read the first few verses of Hebrews... You heard the voice of God. You heard God speaking through his word. Now, I know we would all love to audibly hear God's voice, but it might not be as soothing as we would expect. You might be surprised how God's audible voice sounds. It might not be as soothing as you think. At least it wasn't for Israel. When the nation of Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, they heard God speak, and it scared them to death. And this was the main way that God spoke in the Old Testament. It was through the giving of the law. That's the main way that God spoke to his people in the Old Testament, was through the law. And when he gave the law to Israel in Exodus 19, they were scared to death. Let me read their encounter with God's voice that day from Exodus 19, 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. God hasn't even spoke yet and they're scared to death. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. There was earthquake. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord, Yahweh, came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And then in Exodus 20, the nation of Israel said that they had had enough of God's audible voice. They heard the Ten Commandments and they said, we're done hearing Yahweh speak. They only made it through the Ten Commandments and they were done. They didn't even get to hear the rest of the 613 commandments. All those laws in the Old Testament, Moses eventually told them. But they said these ten words, which is literally what the Hebrew is for ten commandments. It's the ten words or the ten sayings. They heard these ten words, the ten commandments, and they said, that's enough. 
We can't take it anymore. And they said, Moses, you pass God's word on to us because we are scared to death when we hear him speak. Listen, Exodus 20, verses 18 through 19. This is after they've heard the Ten Commandments read. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So they were scared to death when they saw and they heard the ten words from the Lord. They told Moses, we'll listen to you, but please make God stop. When he speaks... We get scared. If Yahweh talks to us again, we will die. Ten words from him are enough. Something to think about when you want to hear the audible voice of God. They were scared to death. Maybe God's voice doesn't sound like Morgan Freeman after all. Something to consider the next time you think, I wish I could hear the audible voice of God. But that was under the old covenant. God spoke the law. He spoke the Ten Commandments, which are a reflection of his character, a reflection of who he is. And Israel was scared to death. But now in the new covenant, God has spoken to us in his son, so we don't have to be afraid. Of course, we have to have and we need reverential fear of God because of who he is and his glory and holiness. But we don't have to be afraid of him. In fact, this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's alluding to what we just read in Exodus. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The author of Hebrews is just saying that Jesus is better. That Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant. That Jesus is better and greater than Moses. Things are different now. Things are better now. All of this to say that there are two words that God speaks in Scripture. He speaks law and he speaks gospel. That's what the Protestant reformers were all in agreement on and the Puritans followed suit. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God has, basically, you can break it down, God has two words that he speaks. He speaks law and he speaks gospel. God spoke the law from Mount Sinai and he spoke the gospel from Mount Zion. There are two stages in God's revelation. In the old covenant, he spoke through Moses In the new covenant, he has spoken through Jesus. And then that's really Paul's point in Galatians 4 when he mentions the two mountains, Hagar and Sarah. So God speaks two words, law and gospel. What we must do and what has been done by Jesus for us. And if you understand this, it will make you a doctor of theology. 
as Martin Luther has famously said. Hence, whoever knows well this art of distinguishing between law and gospel, him place at the head and call him a doctor of holy scripture. If you can distinguish between law and gospel, Martin Luther says you've got a PhD in theology. God speaks two words, law, what we must do, and gospel, what Jesus has done for us. So there's this implied contrast, there's this implied distinction between law and gospel, even here in the first few verses of Hebrews. And then throughout this letter of Hebrews, the contrast and the distinction is this, is that Jesus is superior to the law. Jesus is better than the law. He's greater than Moses. In the past, God spoke in many different ways, but mainly it was through the law, what was given at Mount Sinai. The prophets were always calling the nation of Israel back to God's law. But now in the gospel, he has spoken to us through his son. Literally, the Greek is he has spoken in his son or in son. In the gospel, God has spoken to us in the person and work of his son, Jesus What Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. So yes, God spoke under the old covenant. Yes, he spoke graciously to his people. And yes, there is grace in the Old Testament. There is gospel in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that grace and the gospel isn't in the Old Testament. Because what came first, grace or law? Grace, grace came first. Grace came immediately to Adam and Eve when they sinned. And grace is what redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Yahweh graciously redeemed Israel out of the clutches of Pharaoh, and then he took them to Sinai and gave them the law. So grace came before law. I am not saying that grace only came in the new covenant. God has always been gracious to sinners. But under the old covenant, God primarily spoke law, what he expects of us. But now he has spoken to us in his son Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. That he fulfilled the law that none of us could ever keep. As John says in his gospel, John 1, 16 to 17, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, and by contrast, grace came through Jesus. That's the author's point in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews wants these Jewish Christians to see that all of those old covenant rituals and commandments and sacrifices and ceremonial and civil laws, they have all been fulfilled in Jesus. His point is that when you stack them up Side by side, you see a contrast between law and gospel. His point is simply this, Jesus is better. And Jesus is better and far superior because he came to do what we could not do because we are sinners. The law demands that we be perfect and fully obey the law. But we can't because we're sinners. So Jesus does that for us. The law can be summed up as do this. And the gospel can be summed up as done. God's law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, it demands perfection of every single one of us. But that doesn't mean that the law is bad. It's not. God's law is not bad because it's a reflection of his character, who he is. The law is not bad because it comes from God. So the law is good 
But we aren't. The law is good, but we're not good. The law commands, but it can't give life. That's Paul's point in Romans 7. The law tells us what to do, but it cannot empower us to do it. The law is good because it points us to Jesus, prepares our hearts for Jesus, prepares us for a redeemer. It shows us our sin. And that's why Jesus is better, because Jesus met the demands of the law for us. And that's why the writer of Hebrews begins and will continue to point to Jesus in this letter. He keeps coming back to Jesus throughout this whole sermon. The writer of Hebrews wants his audience to believe the gospel, to believe the good news that it is finished. That Jesus completed everything that needed to be done and obeyed in order to bring sinners to God. The writer of the book of Hebrews wants his audience to have faith, to trust, to believe the gospel. And where does faith come from? Where does faith come from? Belief and trust. Where does faith come from? By hearing about Jesus. In Romans 10, 17, Paul tells us where faith comes from. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing Hearing the word of Christ, hearing the gospel, hearing about Jesus, faith comes from hearing the good news over and over and over again. Faith comes from hearing the word that God has spoken. Jesus paid it all. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. It is finished. Faith comes from hearing about Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. That's why the author of Hebrews begins with Jesus right out of the gate and why he keeps coming back to Jesus throughout his sermon, his letter, because faith comes from hearing. You get faith when you hear about Jesus, what he has done for us and not what we must do for him. That's what the writer of Hebrews will stress over and over again is that Jesus paid it all. It is finished. Trust, believe the good news, have faith. And so the word of Christ creates faith, it creates trust, it creates belief. The gospel creates faith, trust, and belief. That means if you want faith in God, you want love, if you want anything in your life, Christian, then you need to spend time talking about the word of Christ or the gospel. If you want more faith or you want more love for your spouse, anybody here want more love for their spouse? More desire to serve others? Whatever it is that you want more of in the Christian life, You have to spend time thinking about, reading about, and hearing the word of Christ, hearing the gospel. If you want transformation in your life, you have to keep hearing the gospel over and over and over again. And that's why we keep rehearsing the gospel here each week at Grace. That's why our sermons are centered on Jesus and what he has done for us and not primarily what we must do for him because it's the word of Christ, it's the gospel that creates faith, that creates trust, that creates that desire to do what God asks us to do for him. And what does Paul say is the only thing that counts in the Christian life? What did Paul tell the Galatian churches who were also like the Hebrews being tempted to go back under the Old Testament law to be justified? What does Paul tell them in Galatians 5, 6? He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that matters is faith and trust in Jesus expressing itself through love for God and love for neighbor. How do you get that faith that expresses itself 
love for God and love for neighbor? You get it by hearing the word of Christ, Paul says, by hearing the gospel over and over and over again. And so the preacher's job is not to preach faith. It's not to preach love. It's not to preach you need to love your spouse. It's not to preach those things. It's to preach the word, to preach Jesus. Jesus is the word. He's the word spoken by God. My job is to preach the word of Christ each week because that creates faith, that creates trust, that creates belief. And then that faith, when you get that faith and trust after hearing about Jesus, it will express itself in your life for love for God and love for others. And that's, Paul says, that's what matters in the Christian life. And that's why we preach Jesus in our sermons. To say it another way, Jesus is the sermon that God spoke in the incarnation. Jesus is the message that God speaks. Jesus is the content of God's freeing word. And if Jesus is the message, if Jesus is the sermon that God preaches, it seems like that's what our sermons should be about, right? When God speaks, when God preaches, he preaches about his son Jesus, how his son Jesus paid it all. It makes sense then that that would be what our sermons are about. God speaks about how Jesus came to do what we could never do, to live a perfect life in obedience to God's law. And that's why God dropped the mic after the incarnation. What did God say before he dropped the mic? He said, Jesus is better. God took the stage, grabbed the mic, and he said, I have two words, two things to share with you, humanity. Law and gospel. Law, be perfect. Gospel, Jesus paid it all. And then God elaborated on the gospel before he dropped the mic. God said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I will remember your sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in my son Jesus. If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus is better. Drops Mike, walks away. And that's why our sermons are centered on Jesus here at Grace, and that's why the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. Because the word of Christ creates faith. It creates trust. And that's what the author of Hebrews wanted for his audience. He wanted them to trust and to have faith and to believe that God spoke in his son Jesus that Jesus is better. And the Hebrews needed to trust because not only were they being pressured to return to the old covenant, they were being persecuted for their faith. They were suffering because they believed that Jesus is better. They were suffering because they were Christians. They were being thrown in prison, thrown in jail for what they believed. Their homes, we'll find out later on, their homes were being ransacked. They were hated because they belonged to Jesus. And they seemed like people who were going through the same things that we are in our day. And they, like us, needed more trust and more faith to get them through. And that's why the author keeps pointing them to Jesus because Jesus is better. You can file that under A for awesome sauce.
Jesus is better. And that's what we're about to sing. We're about to stand up and declare that Jesus is better. We're about to stand up and sing this. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart what? Believe. Make me have trust. Make me have faith. In all my victories, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Make me trust. Make me have faith. Then any comfort, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Make me have trust and faith. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Let me have faith, God. Let me trust you, God. Our souls declaring Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. God, help me to trust in who you are. Help me to have faith. Our song eternal, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, thank you that you have spoken. You have not left us in the dark. You have made clear to us your commands made that known to us in the law, what you expect of us. We know that we fall short. We ask you to forgive us of our sins this morning. We thank you that you've spoken in your son in the gospel, that he obeyed the law on our behalf to bring us to you so that we could be justified. God, help us to keep thinking about Jesus, talking about Jesus, singing about Jesus so that we have more faith, more trust, more belief. And then I pray that our trust and our belief and our faith in you would be expressed in more love for you, God, and then more love for our neighbor. Make our hearts believe as we go through the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better. In whose name we pray. Amen.